Hey guys, this is Cobain the Christian. Today what I want to talk about is the biblical teaching about wealth, and specifically, how should a Christian who has a significant amount of money uh, respond to that? What is his special obligation, and is it wrong to be rich? Before we get into the substance of that discussion, I want to thank everybody who has become a patron, and for those who have not yet become patrons, uh, I would encourage you, if you're in a good financial situation, to consider becoming one. At the top tier, you are guaranteed at least one hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion with me through audio, whether that's phone, Zoom, or Skype or something equivalent uh, per month, and that's $20 and up. And the other two tiers provide you different levels of premium content. And, of course, the top tier provides all the premium content uh, as well. Uh, so you also have the ability to become a member on YouTube. It is more expensive because YouTube takes a significantly higher cut of the money. But if you really prefer that platform, it's an available option for you. Uh, you will also have the ability to donate 99 cents per month through Anchor, which is where I distribute my podcast out. So every dollar really is immensely helpful. So that doesn't provide any premium content with it. But if, uh, if you're able to just give 99 cents a month, uh, it really does add up. So thank you to everyone. Uh, this has been really encouraging, and it has uh, enabled me really to, to invest a huge amount of time into producing this sort of stuff, not just coming up with the videos, not just doing the necessary research for the videos, not just writing them and doing the PowerPoints. At the at moment, I do all the production myself. Um, uh, but um, managing comments, talking with people on the phone, um, it all has been very encouraging and helpful. Uh, so I realized today that I wasn't going to do a video if I had to do a PowerPoint along with it. So I'm doing just an audio. Um, if you would rather me just do videos with PowerPoints and wait a day or two, uh, if that's what it takes, please let me know in the comments. Uh, but I'm able to produce uh, more videos if I just do some things in this kind of podcast format. So what initiated this line of thought in my own mind was the emphasis that I place in our discussion of the biblical doctrine of justification and glorification on the way in which scripture uses the language of wealth, the riches of God's glory, our separation from God, that is our separation from that uncreated life which gives us existence and empowers us to be what we ought to be in the eternal son as his image and likeness, our separation is signified in the language of debt. And that's because a debt is the difference between what one owes and what one actually has the capacity to pay. And the act of payment is the transference of assets from one person to another. Now, I know this sounds perfectly basic and obvious, but it helps to lay it out explicitly when we get into the discussion of subsidiary concepts and the grammar of symbolism, how one concept corresponds to another. You can see, in fact, this idea of relationality in the very word currency. Think about currency and its associated cognates, like a current in a river. It has to do with the flow of things from one place to another, the change of things in relation to each other. Currency is related to current as what a current is, is it is a transference of energy. 
energy being that which is imparted by God to creation, enabling it to change other things in the world. So when you have a strong current of water flowing over rocks, it restructures and changes the shape of those rocks. When you jump into running water, or in biblical language, living water, that has a different effect on your body than if you jump into still water. Only still water is going to decay and, and develop things like mosquito uh, breeding grounds and so on and so forth. So to pay a debt means to transfer one's capacity to alter the world around you with your currency, transfer that from you to another person. Now I want you to also note the way in which one's assets, currency and assets held in kind, are associated with you as an individual. To speak of one's assets is to speak of that stuff in the world which one has the proper sovereignty to alter in the manner one sees fit. So that's what your property is. What does it mean for you to have property? It means that you have the legal right to do what you wish to that property within certain limits. And the limits that are imposed mean that whoever is imposing these limits legally also has a certain stake in that property as well. So if you have a backyard, you are able to plant flowers in it. You are able to rip up the flowers if you desire to rip them up. But if you tried to do that to your neighbor's yard, that would be illegal. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy places a special prohibition on the movement of boundary markers because the movement of boundary markers is the theft of land from one to another. The human capacity to own property and to manage it, to change it in the way in which he or she sees fit, is rooted in his identity as a microcosm of the world. That is, he is a miniature imprint of that logos through whom the whole creation was made as well. And because the creation as a whole is a living icon of the face of God, as John Damascene says, and you personally are a living icon of the face of God through your communion with God and with others, such that the human family corporately is a living icon of the face of God, that means that there is a correspondence, a link between the human family and the creation. So God upholds the creation at every moment because he is actively imparting his own power of existence to the world. So that the world is not just set up and then it runs on its own power. No, all power exists by nature and necessity in the life of God. So anything that exists must have its existence imparted to it at every moment of its existence. The way God has wired the world is that mankind is the organism within which and through which the creation continues to exist. I've discussed this in my video series on prayer. It is through mankind's relation to God that the creation as a whole is placed in right or wrong relation to God. That is why when man turns away from God and thus brings death into his own nature, because life is for a thing to exist more and more fully. To turn away from God means one disintegrates, one falls into corruption, one tends towards non-existence. Well, when man is in that relation to God, the creation as well 
falls into corruption. Man is like the head or source of a river. And if that head is polluted, so also is everything downstream polluted. This is the basis for man's capacity to own property. That is why certain nations are placed in an ontological relationship with the lands which they are given by God. Deuteronomy 32 speaks of God dividing the nations and allotting them their initial territory. Israel has a particular bond with the land of Israel, which they do not have with the land which is allotted to Edom. This is spoken of in the book of Numbers in Deuteronomy. When they want to pass through the land of Edom, they have to get permission from those who have sovereignty over that land. And of course, man is taken out of the land, out of dirt, out of dust to begin with. So the symbolism of earth is linked with the symbolism of man. Now in Genesis chapter 1, God enjoins man to be fruitful and multiply. He gives him mastery or dominion over the creation, but he also enjoins man to go forth and subdue it. Now that word subdue can also be translated as conquer, but the concept includes conquest but extends beyond it. And this is why we can understand the conquest of the gospel as being what it is. What happens in conquest? Well, in conquest, one nation acquires the ability to determine the goings-on in a new piece of land. It takes by force the capacity to exercise jurisdiction over one piece of land from another nation, and it places it under its own rights. That's what's going on in conquest. Well, weapons are the instrument of forcible conquest, but we see in the scriptures that there is a correspondence between weapons and tools. So, for example, twice in Israel's history, once in Judges and once in Samuel, Israel has no weapons of war, but they win their battles with agricultural tools. Agricultural tools are the instruments which extend Israel's capacity to restructure and alter the world around them. In Isaiah 2, we are told that in the Messianic age, the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That is, they will not destroy their weapons, but that material which they had structured into weapons will be restructured into tools by which they develop the world. They make the world fruitful. We see throughout the scriptures that the language of fruitfulness and multiplication is one of the most important ways in which the biblical authors speak about a thing's growing in life. That's why James says in James chapter 1, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth to bear fruit for God. Paul, in speaking of our resurrection in the Son of God, will speak of us being uh, put to death to sin, made alive in Christ so that we might bear fruit, in contrast to the fruit that we used to bear, which was unto death. Jesus says, abide in me so that you will bear fruit. He is the vine. We are the branches. The language of fruitfulness is one of the most significant symbols for life and for resurrection. Think about during the lives of the patriarchs. Again and again, we see that the wives of the patriarchs are barren. They are not able to be an instrument by which God multiplies the human family. They are not an instrument by which God extends that life which inheres in the human family as image of God. 
but by the divine work and power, their wombs are opened so that they can bear that fruit. And this indeed corresponds very closely with the repeated famines which occur in the book of Genesis. Just as God opens the wombs of the wives of the patriarchs, so also does he open the womb of the land, so that the land which was barren begins to bear fruit. And that signifies the process by which God takes the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, and turns it into a land that was subject to famine, into a land which is flowing with milk and honey. Note again this idea of fruitfulness being implied in the word milk. Milk is something which is produced by mammals when they bear fruit. When we see the biblical author saying about man be fruitful and multiply, that is a symbol which was taken from what goes on in the third creation day where God creates fruit trees, fruit-bearing fruit. And then in Genesis 3, we hear about the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Well, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Seed is an agricultural term. God created on the third day plants in which there was seed. And Jesus in the gospel says that the seed is the word of God. He himself is the seed. He is the one who is eternally born from God and dwells in his bosom so that we are born of God in him and dwell in the bosom of the Father through the bosom of Christ. That's why in the prologue of John's gospel, it says that God the only begotten is in the bosom of the Father and has made him known. Well, that word is only used one other time in the whole New Testament, as far as I can recall. Uh, it definitely only one other time in the Gospel of John. Uh, and that is at the Last Supper, where the beloved disciple dwells at the bosom of Jesus. He dwells at his breast. It's the same word. And the beloved disciple is a sign, a symbol of all Christians whom Jesus loved, uh, who were in the world and loved them to the end. That's why when uh, Jesus says to the beloved disciple, Behold your mother, concerning the Virgin Mary, that is by implication an injunction to all Christians who are loved by Jesus. And just as in the Gospel of John, it is a major theme, one's household, one's dwelling. When the uh, uh, disciples Peter and, uh, I think it's John, uh, might be Philip, when, when Peter first meets Jesus, he says, Where are you dwelling, Rabbi? They ask concerning his home. Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many dwellings. And then in John 19, we're told that the beloved disciple, again symbolizing all of us, the beloved disciple took Our Lady to his own home. So this symbol is used to great effect throughout the gospel and indeed throughout the apocalypse uh, which is a sequel to the gospel of john and has many theological connections to it there are questions that are raised in john's gospel which are only answered in john's apocalypse but we see in the book of deuteronomy one of the blessings of the covenant is the multiplication of israel as a nation as Gary North puts it, of course, they're not endorsing everything he says, but he's written some very insightful things. Uh, population growth is a tool of dominion. What is it that Egypt is so terrified of? It's, it, Israel's population is multiplying and expanding so quickly. The more uh, children the nation has, the more power that they have relative to uh, the rest of Egypt. Now, this was paranoia on their part because Israel had been a great blessing to Egypt. Nevertheless, we see the way in which dominion is linked to childbearing. Christianity multiplies into the world because Christian societies are fruitful societies. 
I know this could be taken in all sorts of uh, controversial directions, uh, and I'm not rejecting those, but I want, that's not our subject of discussion today. Uh, but it's worth pointing out that uh, this is one of the ways in which Christians have uh, uh, acquired possession of various kingdoms and lands. And the Rodney Stark speaks uh, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, of the relative fertility of the pagan Romans and the Christian Romans, the Christians being higher, uh, so that eventually they uh, became the dominant force within the Roman Empire. But in the book of Deuteronomy, that blessing of the covenant is extended to that land which Israel has dominion over. So it's not only the people who are fruitful, it's the cattle who are fruitful, and it's the uh, uh, agricultural work which is fruitful. Now throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we see a lot of discussion of wealth. We're told in Deuteronomy 8, it is the power of God which enables them to get wealth so that he might confirm his covenant. Now that's an important phrase right there. First, we have to keep in mind what is wealth. Wealth is not money. The two things are not the same. What we mean by money is wealth that is converted to currency. That's like dollars and cents. What is currency? Well, currency only represents a small fraction of the wealth in a given society. Okay, Currency is wealth in motion. Let's say you have a computer, but what you want is you want a bunch of icons. So what you do is you sell your computer, you convert it into its proportional currency, and then you reconvert that currency into another form of wealth that is a bunch of icons. So again, we see the use of the word currency here. It is wealth in motion. It is wealth uh, in its intermediate form. You're converting it from one form to another. But wealth isn't just something which is moved around. It increases through time. That's why the language of multiplication is so significant in the scriptures. What happens when a civilization is successful? What happens when God gives Israel the power to get wealth? Well, what happens is that by the energy of God, they are able to pour their own energy into the world and more efficiently bring about an increase of whatever it is that they are producing. So the land of Israel corresponds to the land of Eden, which produces food. There are other lands which produce metalworking. We see this in Havilah in the book of Genesis chapter 2. Havilah uh, has precious metals and precious stones. Uh, but biblical symbolism on this point is fungible, as it were. When the Bible talks about agricultural produce, this can be applied symbolically to wealth in general. And it's interesting that in Deuteronomy, one of the words that is used for wealth is the same word that's used for an army. This is very fascinating. And this correspondence is no accident. Israel acquires the first piece of the promised land. How? By buying it. The patriarchs pay for a little slice of the promised land. When Israel is given the capacity to produce more and more agricultural produce, what do they do? They have a surplus, which they then export to the nations. And as we see in the book of Genesis, when Egypt has a surplus of agricultural produce relative to everyone around them, what do they then have the capacity to do? They have the capacity to exercise cultural influence. 
So all the nations have to come to Egypt, and when they come to Egypt, they meet this guy named Joseph who tells them about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph feeds the world with bread. That is corporeal, bodily, but it's also spiritual. The way that symbols work is that the symbol is not an arbitrary attachment. No, there is a real connection between that bread which feeds the body and that bread which feeds the soul. The two are linked to each other. Likewise, in Christian history, when the Christian Roman Empire became relatively uh, powerful, it means that they are able to extend their influence all the way up to, say, the Slavic kingdoms. The Slavic kingdoms uh, see that it would be politically advantageous to create a marriage alliance with the Christian Roman emperor, and the influence of the gospel flows outwards. We see in the book of Leviticus, they are, uh, the judge is told to show no partiality, either against the poor man or against the rich man. One of the signs of a truly wise person, one of the reasons I like C.S. Lewis so much, is because he was right on issues that were both morally popular and which were morally unpopular. Anybody can condemn eugenics after the Holocaust. Anybody can do that. It's easy. What's not easy is being prescient about it. Both Lewis and Tolkien were very prescient about it. But it wasn't just those issues which became popular. Lewis also was critical of uh, experimentation on animals. That's something which maybe isn't as big of an, uh, of, of an issue in Christian circles. But Lewis cared about both, not because they were popular or unpopular. Popular. He was neither following the crowd nor reacting against the crowd, but following simply and only what he was genuinely convinced was right. Well, we see the same thing in the scriptures. The scriptures critique those who would show partiality against those who are poor, who would look down on them because they are impoverished, but they also condemn looking down on a man simply because he is wealthy. We see in the scriptures, as we've just mentioned, that wealth is spoken of as a blessing. Now, it's easy, that it's, it's easy for some people to slip into the prosperity gospel heresy, but we also shouldn't react against it too excessively. Okay, I, I am totally against the prosperity gospel, but nevertheless, there are scriptures which speak of wealth and a bless, as a blessing. And as we've mentioned, there is a corporeal and a spiritual dimension to this. That which, is, that which is intrinsically sinful to possess is not a good symbol for divine blessing. So when Paul speaks of the riches of God's glory, that is able to be used as a symbol for spiritual blessing because Riches, objectively, are good. Now, some would then say, well, doesn't Jesus warn about the danger of being wealthy? And indeed, he does. But note that James says not many of you should be teachers. Why? Because teachers have a greater responsibility. Because it is dangerous to operate with that kind of responsibility. But that doesn't mean that teaching is a bad thing. No, intrinsically, it is a blessing. It is a good thing to be a minister of the church through teaching. It is those things which are good which are proportionately more dangerous, not those things which are simply bad in and of themselves. And I think the fundamental error in the minds of those who say 
full stop, it is wealth is prohibited by the New Testament, is the assumption implicitly that what wealth fundamentally is, is the power to get more comfort for oneself, when that is not actually what wealth is. What wealth is, is the power to exercise a certain amount of influence in the world. If you have a hundred billion dollars, sure, you can buy um, you can buy trillions of McDonald's hamburgers. But you can also fund political candidates. You can also support organizations which identify as charitable organizations. You can also patronize certain kinds of art and science. You can sponsor certain research projects. You can fund certain people to get uh, get doctoral uh, degrees. That is, you are able to exercise a significant amount of influence in the world. You can build churches in certain locations, fund icons for certain parishes. You can get people coming to you and asking you for help. You get $100 billion, you're going to have lots and lots and lots of people coming to your doorstep and asking for a handout. And I don't say that polemically. Sometimes it's good to give that handout, and sometimes it's not. Point is... You are in the position to say yes or no to them, meaning by your will, you are able to determine what possibility becomes real and what possibility doesn't become real. Wealth is about power and influence, not about buying additional comfort for yourself. One book I recommend you guys read is Peter Brown's um, book on wealth in early Christianity called Through the Eye of a Needle. And Brown discusses the differences between the pre-Christian conception of patronage, which he calls eugenicism, and the Christian idea of wealth. And he shows how the fathers reached a consensus through striving intellectually to work through the biblical revelation and work through the practical questions facing a Christian society, not a society under persecution as they used to be, but the new questions that were brought about by them actually being in a position of power. And the conclusion that the fathers of the church came to was that wealth is an intrinsic good which has to be managed in a wise way and must be managed for the good of others. So is the Christian obligated to simply give up all of his money to a charity? And I would say no, because consider two contrasting scenarios. You have $50 million on the one hand, and you've got 60 years left in your life. You can either give up all of that money immediately. You can give it to a charitable organization, a genuinely charitable organization, or you can invest it. And by investing in it, the value of that capital is going to increase over time. And you give a certain cut of it to these charitable organizations every year. Now, it's much more likely that in the long run, these charitable organizations will receive more money if you do this latter action than if you do the former action. That is... A person who has significant financial assets is in a position by wise management of that wealth to bless more people by managing it wisely consistently and by giving one's tithes to the church, by giving 
charitable donations to the poor and to others, by patronizing good art which will have a gospel-positive influence in the world. And that's why wealth is used as a symbol for God's glory, the riches of God's glory. Well, what is the glory of God? Philippians 3, 20-21, it says that we, uh, Christ will resurrect the body of our lowliness so that it becomes like the body of his glory by the power in which he is able to subject all things to himself. The glory of God, that revelation of divine light, that is the visible manifestation of God's uncreated energies. And what are the energies of God? The operations of God, the activities of God. That is God's power. Christ lives by the glory, by the energies of God. Colossians chapter 2 says that we are raised from the dead with Christ by the powerful energizing of God in us. Philippians chapter 2 says, uh, uh, Work out or energize out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who energizes in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then Christ, it, Paul says that Jesus lives by the power of God. Power and energies, these are two features of the same ontological thing. God's energies are God's powers to create a certain set of circumstances or to impart his own uncreated life to the corresponding creature. Glory, power, energies, these are all ways of expressing the same fundamental concept. And the fact that glory is expressed in the language of riches helps us to see the relationship that this has with wealth. Wealth, like energy, is a capacity to exercise influence on the creation. And what one is called to do in Christ is to exercise that influence wisely. Now, the book of Proverbs has a lot of practical wisdom. And if you live as a Christian, and if you live wisely in the stock market, it is actually more likely, all things being equal, and a lot of the time all things are not equal, this is not a statement that if you're, if you're obedient, you're going to become rich, because that's not true. But all things being equal, managing your wealth with Christian values is more likely to produce more wealth. Why? Well, imagine that you worship money. If you worship money, if that's your idol, if that's what you value above all other things, imagine how stressful every little jolt of the stock market will be. And when people get stressed over jolts in the stock market, are they more likely to behave wisely or behave unwisely? Well, they're more likely to behave unwisely. It is only when you are balanced, when your true love is in God and in others, not in money, that you're more likely to be patient and dispassionate in terms of the assets that you have in the market or elsewhere. And that means... The more increase you are more likely to have, which means the more you have to give to the poor, the more you have to give to things which are good, the more you have to build churches, and so on and so forth. So that's basically what I have to say today. I feel pretty good about a half hour. Um, the summary statement here is that what wealth is, is the capacity to exercise influence in the world. And that is why it is described in the language of divine glory. That is why, for example, as you get closer and closer to the divine presence in the temple, the more valuable the metals are. To work in the world, to restructure the world in a more highly organized way, you take the raw material, which is silicon, you sell a pound of silicon, it's not going to sell for that much, 
but you work that pound of silicon into computer chips, you're going to sell it for a lot more. The same raw material is uh, there in both cases, but by the empowering presence of God, in the latter case, you have been enabled to structure that material into something precise, into something corresponding to a plan or archetype in your mind. That is, you've exemplified one of the features of the image of God, which is rationality. That is, one of the features is rationality. All right, so uh, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again soon.